the very purpose which draws us together here, building a peaceful world, will be thwarted if a situation is accepted in which a government intervenes across its borders in the affairs of another with military force in violation of the United Nations Charter. We have to ensure the proper conditions for self-determination so that the citizens of Crimea, it's a good thing that at least they remember there is such a thing as international law. UNSC was not the right forum for such issues and this should be discussed bilaterally between India and Pakistan. This is a test for the United Nations. You are the one who guaranteed the people of Kashmir the right of self-determination. Welcome to Article 38, the official podcast of the International Law Society at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations. My name is Ahmed Choudhury, and today we have our first podcast covering territorial disputes in the context of international law. We will be covering issues in international law that are relevant to Jammu and Kashmir. After this podcast, we will be going to professionals and country representatives of this territorial dispute to get the positions of India and Pakistan on Jammu and Kashmir in the context of international law. The reason I keep mentioning in the context of international law is due to the highly political nature of these territorial disputes. And of course, since we are the International Law Society, our aim is to con concentrate on the legal issues under international law. Throughout the podcast, we may refer to Jammu and Kashmir as just Kashmir, because in vernacular, this is most often used. I'm joined here today by one of our members, Ali Ryswick to help me present the Jammu and Kashmir case. Hi, I'm excited to be here and look forward to our discussion. We want to begin this process by first covering the historical events that took place, which led to Jammu and Kashmir becoming a territorial dispute between Pakistan and India. And I'm aware that China also has a claim in this disputed area, but for the purposes of our project, we will focus on India and Pakistan. So I think a good place to start is the events around 1947, so we want to look at the makeup of how the power structure was set up. Yes, so prior to 1947 and the partition of India, the British ruled India through direct control of areas or indirect rule through aligning and having arrangements with the rulers of those princely states. These arrangements gave away some autonomy that the princely states had, but ultimately allowed the rulers to remain in power. The British, after World War II, feeling the strain on their power and economy from the war, along with global pressures at this time of decolonialization, decided to make India an independent state. The process and how the British did this is really what leads to Kashmir becoming a territorial dispute. There were two dominant views at this time, on polar opposite ends kind of, on how India should become independent. On one side, you had the representatives of the Hindu majority, uh, with Mahatma Gandhi, uh, as we famously know, and Nehru. And they argued that India should not be divided, but instead become one united secular India. On the opposite side, though, you had Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who represented the Muslim majority. And he argued that India should be divided into two nations, that a Hindu majority and a, and a Muslim majority should be created, noting that a Muslim minority in a united India would never be able to have any political power. Interestingly, I read that Nehru had offered Jinnah to become the first prime minister of an independent, united India. And Jinnah never took up that offer. 
Eventually, the British, under pressure from riots in India, decided in 1947 that India would become independent through a partition of a Hindu majority, or India, and a Muslim majority, Pakistan and East Pakistan, which we now know as modern-day Bangladesh. The process of partition went through the British looking at the population densities of areas where Muslims were majority and where Hindus were majority. In the case where there was no clear majority, the princely states were given the choice of which nation they wanted to join. For most part, the monarchs of these princely states decided to join the nation that best reflected their people's will. This division on a map was drawn up by Sir Cyril Radcliffe and became known as the Radcliffe Line. Interestingly, if you look up this line on the map, you notice that it stops around Jammu and Kashmir. Up until independence in August of 1947, each princely state had decided whether to join India or Pakistan except for Jammu and Kashmir, which had a majority Muslim population but a Hindu ruler. And, and so this ruler, uh, Maharaja Hari Singh, on the hopes of having Kashmir become an independent nation, stalled. Um, and this created anxiety amongst the Muslim-majority population, and they rebelled fearing that Kashmir would become a part of India. Then you had tribesmen from the northern regions of Pakistan, including Patan tribesmen, join in on the fight in Kashmir. In response to this, the Maharaja appeals to India for assistance. But India says it won't cross the border unless the Maharaja Hari Singh signs an instrument of accession. And this is the instrument of accession that would make Kashmir a seat to India. The instrument of accession is the first piece of evidence we can look at in terms of international law. So let's have a look at the language used in the letters exchanged between Maharaja Hari Singh and Lord Mountbatten regarding the instrument of accession. On October 26, 1947, Maharaja Hari Singh signs this document stating, I, Maharaja Hari Singh, ruler of Jammu and Kashmir, state in the exercise of sovereignty in and over my state, do hereby execute this as my instrument of accession. And this gives to the Indian government a sort of green light and legitimacy of control over Jammu and Kashmir. In response to this, on the 27th of October, Lord Mountbatten, who was the Viceroy of India in charge of the petition, wrote a letter to the Maharaja saying, your Highness, my government has decided to accept the accession of Kashmir state to the Dominion of India. Consistently with their policy that in the case of any state where the issue of accession has been the subject of dispute, the question of accession should be decided in accordance with the wishes of the people of the state. It is my government's wish that as soon as law and order have been restored in Kashmir and her soil cleared of the invader, the question of the state's accession should be settled by a reference to the people. So this letter essentially makes it so that the decision of accession is to be finalized by a public referendum of the majority Muslim population. As of today, that referendum never happened. As a result, today we see a deadlock in fighting over the disputed territory. There have been three wars between these two nations and many skirmishes still occur. Today, both countries are nuclear powers and so tensions over Kashmir between the two causes international anxiety. The first of these wars occurred when India joined to help the Maharaja in 1947. India also took a step that is important regarding international law, and that is taking the issue to the UN Security Council under Chapter 6 of the UN Charter. This is important because it invokes the dispute resolution powers of the UN. When we look at Chapter 6 of the UN Charter, it deals with Pacific settlement of dispute, essentially hoping to resolve a dispute without the use of force. Article 33 of the Charter states that parties must seek a solution through negotiations, 
whether it's through mediation, arbitration, judicial settlement, agencies, arrangements, or any other peaceful means of their own choice. Later mentioned through Article 37, if the parties fail to settle the dispute th through negotiations, they must bring it to the Security Council. Under international law, Security Council resolutions are binding, and they get this power from Articles 24 and 25 of the UN Charter. The Security Council resolutions regarding Jammu and Kashmir present the next piece of evidence that, that is crucial in terms of international law. I want to point out, though, that some nations have differing interpretations of what they consider binding from the Security Council resolutions. An example is Security Council Resolution 2234, which discussed Israeli settlements. I read an article by Don Joyner, who was referring to the position of Ordi Keiter, and I might have misspelled or butchered his name there, but he wrote, Resolution 2334 was not adopted under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter and is not le legally binding. So this assumption or the position is that if a resolution is not adopted in exercise of Chapter 7, they are not binding. Although for the most part, I believe that the understanding in international law is that decisions of the Security Council are not contingent upon the acting in exercise of Article 7. The ICJ's Namibia advisory opinion provides evidence of this because it found the provision of that case to be binding, and one of the provisions led with calls upon. And I bring this up because it shows the manner of different interpretations a nation might have regarding a resolution. Back to the resolutions, in response to the conflict in Kashmir, the Security Council passed the first resolutions for Kashmir, resolutions 38 and 39, which stated that the Security Council would investigate the facts that went into the conflict, that the parties should exercise any, meteor any mediatory influence to settle the disputes ordered by the Council, and for the parties to report on the progress of the execution of the advice and directions of the Security Council. Next, the Council passed Resolution 47 in April of 1948, calling for both Pakistan and India to withdraw Pakistani tribesmen and Indian troops from Kashmir. This withdrawal never occurred. Resolution 47 states that, Nothing with satisfaction that both India and Pakistan desire that the question of the accession of Jammu and Kashmir to India or Pakistan should be decided through the democratic method of a free and impartial plebiscite. What essentially Resolution 47 here is saying is that once the area is demil demilitarized, under the auspices of the UN through, say, a plebiscite administrator, a free and fair and partial plebiscite would occur or should occur, um, allowing the Kashmiri people to choose which nation to accede to. It's important to note, though, that the region was never demilitarized and to this day it is not. What's also highly significant about Resolution 47 is that under international law, the Security Council is recognizing the right of self-determination to Kashmiris. Self-determination is a core principle of international law arising from customary international law or binding rules established from state practice. And it is the legal right for all people to decide their own sovereignty, political status, economic development, and socio-cultural development. The concept of self-determination is protected under the UN Charter and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, or also known as the ICCPR. So going with, with back to the timeline that we have, in 1951, the Maharaja's son, Yuvraj Singh, creates a constituent assembly. And this is the next thing that is relevant to international law. Remember that the instrument of session is contingent on the will of the people of Kashmir, that it is supposed to occur through a, re a referendum. 
The, the Constituent Assembly provides, I think, from an Indian point of view, a form of referendum that could legitimize the instrument of accession and in some format justify Security Council resolutions and the fact that the people of Kashmir have a say. The Constituent Assembly goes together with the instrument of accession and the Constituent Assembly ratifies the instrument of accession. So an Indian case under international law might be made that having taken the people's wishes through this assembly, the UN and the Security Council are no longer needed. Pakistan would obviously disagree to that point and say that the Constituent Assembly was not a reflection of the Kashmiri people's voices and that the referendum needs to be taken place through a plebiscite. The Security Council's view on the Constituent Assembly was made in Security Council Resolution 91, which passed on March 30th of 1951. It states, affirming that the convening of a Constituent Assembly as recommended by the General Council of the All Jammu and Kashmir National Conference and any action that Assembly might attempt to take to determine the future shape and affiliation of the entire state or any part thereof would not constitute a disposition of the state in accordance with the above principle. That above principle was reiterating the need for the will of the people to be showcased through a plebiscite. So the UN Security Council is saying that the methods other than the plebiscite are not acceptable. Another important event that is very relevant to what we discussed later on about recent activities in Kashmir has to do with the incorporation of Kashmir as an Indian territory under Article 370 of the Indian Constitution, which took place in 1954. This was done with respect to the Constituent Assembly. But the assembly dissolved quickly after this, and thus this kind of gave Kashmir a special status as a permanent feature of the Indian constitution. But now I want to move back to the Security Council resolutions. In 1957, the Security Council, through Resolution 122, again reiterates the need for a plebiscite and also added, declares that the convening of a constituent assembly, as recommended by the General Council of the All Jammu and Kashmir National Conference and any action that the Assembly may take or may have taken or might attempt to take to determine the future shape and affiliation of the entire state or any part, therefore, or action by the parties considered in support of any such action by the Assembly would not constitute a disposition of the state in accordance with the above principle. And that uh, above principle is also referring to the plebiscite. So we see up to this point, the Security Council's position is a consistent one. Back to our timeline, in 1965, the Second Indo-Pakistani War breaks out and the UN Security Council issues resolutions 209, 210, 211, 214, and 215 calling for a ceasefire. The ceasefires were unsuccessful and, as a result, the United States and Soviet Union had to intervene into the conflict and created the Dashkent Declaration, with both, with both Pakistan and India signed, declaring that both parties would withdraw their armed personnel. What's interesting, though, is that both parties did not come to a ceasefire through pressures of a legal obligation through the UN, but instead from pressures from the world balance of powers at the time, which were the United States and Soviet Union. Uh, this is uh, the unfortunate reality we see regarding international law in the world, that under national security situations, um, international law obligations are often sidelined. I also want to point out uh, that the de facto lines of control in Kashmir remain the same after, 19, after the 1965 war. So 
I'm going to discuss some terminology of the lines and how each state uses it. I think it's uh, important. So my understanding is that the line that divides India and Pakistan, uh, their positions in Kashmir, is called the line of actual control because that's the word actually. In reality, the two sides are up against each other. And the Indian side is called Indian administered Kashmir. And the Pakistani side is called Pakistan administered Kashmir. But for India, the Pakistani-administered Kashmir is called Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. And then for Pakistan, the Indian side, the Indian-administered Kashmir, is called Indian-occupied Kashmir. So these are just uh, important distinctions that we should know. This brings us to the Third Indo-Pakistani War in 1971. This war was significant in the fact that its main focus was actually not on the Kashmir issue, but on India's support of rebel groups in East Pakistan who were uprising against Pakistan for independence. The rebel groups won, and East Pakistan became Bangladesh. Due to the fact that Pakistan lost its eastern sect, Kashmir became an even more important focus point for Pakistan, and the region became heavily militarized. Both Pakistan and India began to deploy troops, planes, tanks, and weapons along the line of control. Um, out, of, out of this war, we get what I believe to be the most important evidence in the context of international law for the Indian position. And that is the Simla Agreement of 1972. The interpretations this treaty uh, for this treaty that the two nations have uh, kind of sums up the positions they both have regarding Kashmir quite well. So first, we should briefly go over the importance of treaties. Treaties are a primary source of international law, and they are one of the oldest methods of two entities agreeing to something mutually. They are written agreements that mutually bind countries to obligations. Because consent is required by the parties, in our case India and Pakistan, they are superior to customs. The UN Charter is considered a treaty and other instruments like conventions, protocols, and covenants are also considered treaties. I would advise listening to our first podcast on the fundamentals of international law just to understand the sources of international law of which treaties is one. So let's explore what is in the Shimla Agreement. I think something that India would hold in high importance of Simla would be in para 1, subpara 2, which states that the two countries are resolved to settle their differences by peaceful means through bilateral negotiations, or by any other peaceful means mutually agreed upon between them. Pending the final settlement of any of the problems between the two countries, neither side shall unilaterally alter the situation, and both shall prevent the organization assistance or encouragement of any acts detrimental to the maintenance of peace, peaceful and harmonious relations. This can be interpreted, at least from the Indian position, as something that no longer obliges India to deal with the UN Security Council or the UN in, in the regard of the territorial dispute in Kashmir, that instead that the matter should be discussed bilaterally between India and Pakistan. So beyond that, we have para 4, subpara 2 of the similar agreement, and it states, in Jammu and Kashmir, the line of control resulting from the ceasefire of December 17, 1971 shall be respected by both sides without prejudice to the recognized position of either side. Neither side shall seek to alter it unilaterally irrespective of mutual differences and legal interpretations. And both sides further undertake to refrain from the threat or the use of force in violation of this line. This also kind of goes along with the Indian position that the de facto territories are to be held. 
However, Pakistan's stance is that the former UN resolutions issued on Kashmir should not be ignored or disregarded. And at such a time that they are dismissed by the UN, India cannot unilaterally ignore them. Pakistan relies on Para 1 Subpara 1 of the Simla Agreement for their interpretation and position. This portion states that the principles and purpose for the Charter of the United Nations shall govern the relations between the two countries. So for Pakistan, those principles of the UN Charter should most definitely include the UN Security Council resolutions, and that until there is a legal instrument that Pakistan signs that dismisses those resolutions, they are relevant, because the language does not dismiss the Security Council resolutions. So this is where, from our research, the legal instruments that both states can utilize under international law kind of stop. Because in 1971, the last Security Council resolution uh, was issued. But the dispute continues. Um, I just want to sum up the positions. India believes that the instrument of accession, in combination with the Constituent Assembly, legitimizes their claim over Kashmir. Also, that the Simla Agreement precludes the Security Council resolutions from mattering in the dispute. That the UN Security Council is not the right forum for discussing Kashmir. And that it should be discussed bilaterally between India and Pakistan. The Pakistani position comes from the relevance of the Security Council resolutions, which guarantees from their position the people the right of self-determination in Kashmir. And the similar agreement does not preclude India from its obligations to international law under the UN Charter. These are the positions as we see them from our research. We want to end, though, with some issues in international law regarding state responsibility and recent events in Kashmir. The modern-day approach to international law has become more oriented towards the protection of human rights. And since human rights are a norm protected under international law, they must be guaranteed to individuals, including those of a de facto state, regardless of that state's political status. The problem that arises with state obligations for a de facto, territory, a de facto territory is who has the legitimate right of control. Is it the state who incumbent who encompasses the de facto state within their territory, or the state who is politically, economically, or militarily supplying the de facto state. And this is what creates an open gap. Ultimately, both India and Pakistan are responsible, as Pakistan is responsible for the Pakistan-administered portion of Kashmir, while India is responsible for the human rights in the Indian-administered portion of Kashmir. Um, the last item uh, we want to discuss is about the recent events in Kashmir. Um, as it might pertain to international law, is that in 2019, the Indian government abrogated Articles 370 and 35A. This meant that the autonomy and the special status of the region would no longer exist. The special status allowed Indian-administered Kashmir to have autonomy over its own affairs, uh, but not like its foreign affairs or its communication and uh, the military. And the Indian government still controlled those aspects. Still, Jammu and Kashmir could make its own laws regarding citizenships, so who is a permanent residence, this kind of thing, have its own constitution, its own uh, property rights, you know, who can own land, uh, this, this sort of autonomy. This allowed them to ensure that outsiders would not come, up, come in and buy up land. Uh, but the issue was that removing these articles means that essentially all of the provisions now of the Indian constitutions are applicable to the Indian administered Kashmir. Uh, this is a significant change, and my understanding of its ramifications are uh, a little bit uh, limited uh, regarding international law. And so hopefully, though, through the country positions that we go on to do, we'll be able to better understand this. 
Our attempt with the information we provided was to focus on the facts and issues relating to international law in Kashmir. Yeah, we're not an ICJ court where this case is presented, and we're not making a judgment on who was right or wrong. We just wanted, uh, through this podcast, to showcase to you, our listeners, the information you will need to understand the country positions of India and Pakistan in our upcoming podcast. We are aware of the political nature of this topic and understand the opposing opinions it draws, and so we hope that you will take away from this information not as a position of ILS, but as our current comprehension of the facts regarding the territorial dispute. And I think that's all we have uh, today. And I just wanted to thank you for tuning in. To keep up with us, make sure to follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And make sure to subscribe to hear our future podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.